0: I'm Tom Keane with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and, of course, on the Bloomberg. Joe Quinlan with us with U.S. Trust Merrill Lynch and working on a broader thematic strategy. Let me cut to the theme. I was having dinner in Mayfair, the evening of June 24th, 10 a.m. on June 23rd, the world came to an end for England, for Britain, for the United Kingdom, and then the next morning was a total uproar, and at 7 p.m. on a summer's evening, I had a dinner there. The world was going to end. November 8th, the world's going to end. Once again, here we are at 20,800. So when do I know when to get out?
1: Uh- I think that's a great question, Tom. In the sense that the politicians have to pay attention to the populist movement that's angry, a lot of angst. Yet, the key is they're they're responding to it. So you know, remember austerity. Now we've got more fiscal spending. So if, if we do not get these policies in place that promote growth trickle down and i hate that concept because that rarely happens then we're going to see more pressure on the politicians to spend more and i think the markets will take that the wrong way and here we go we roll over so it's it's the key the politics responding to the populism that creates the growth that kind of pacifies and pushes back kind of the day of reckoning when, particularly in, in the credit markets so we're not right. there yet
2: but Joe, why are we seeing these record highs for indices? Is it really on fundamentals or is it still that cheap money out there
1: fre I see it's combination. it 's a combination It is cheap money there 's no doubt about that uh, it 's the fundamentals it 's the cyclical upswing and it 's also in particular the expectation. That Davos man will respond to this populist uprising and make it happen, pacify the workers, everyone that's angry. You're seeing the employment numbers gradually improve, and there's a lot of noise there. So it's the expectation that the, the stimulus is coming.
2: All right. What does it take to correct, or as you say, to see a little bit of a pullback from these indices?
1: I think it's going to be profit-taking. Um, you know, I think a, a lot of hedge funds... Oh, that's a phrase too,
0: from... Francine's too young to remember what that phrase is. <laughs> I haven't not heard... Not Joe, actually, but I have, thank not, you. I have not heard that phrase, well, and
3: I'll
1: bet you seven years. Well, Tom, I think, you know, this cliche, you know, sell and may and go away, I think that's going to be come with a vengeance this oh, year. Oh,
0: we have... A, Colin of the Twins, do you have the tape recorder on? We just had Miller, Mr. Uh, Quinlan here say sell and may and go away is going to work this year. I,
1: I'm, you know, I'm really come thinking...
0: Come The last it, four years in a row, it's been been a total fraud.
1: It's been a total fraud, but this year from, from the election, I think people will take their profits. And the key will be, well, what's going to happen in June, July when it comes to the actual policy backdrop? If we don't get the policies coming forward, uh, fair. then then we're going to have some real problems. And the critical okay. moment will be in the summer.
0: Help Francine here. we got you for the whole half hour here, which is great. Help Francine LaCroix with your idea of a global lift. She is so weighted down. By the collapse of Italy, all the political stuff, etc. She was weighted down by Burberry. Had no plaid in their in their show this no, week. That was you, Tom. Oh no, that, that was, was me. You. Yeah, but but come on, Joe. Help me here with a global lift. Nobody's buying you.
1: Well, I, but Tom, the numbers are there. I mean, you see the PMI numbers. You see China stabilizing. Brazil, Russia, better. Um, you know, the developed markets are playing along. Japan's numbers are better. So I think agreed. But it's the monetary but stimulus has been out there for on, so long, Joe. as you know, that it does. It, it's not. Gonna, it's finally working. Now I'm not looking for like four percent GDP. Right? They're a bit better. They're
2: a the, bit better, but but they're not what we saw ten, fifteen years ago. We're never going back to pre-crisis levels, or are we?
1: Now, I, I would never say never, Francine, and I agree with you, it's going to be more muted gro- growth, but if we can get the global GDP growth average back to 3.5%, 3.7% in that range, have the emerging markets stabilize, then we can kind of plod forward. And I would, I would agree in the sense that maybe the markets are giving too much credit to the policymakers and the economic backdrop, but earnings are good. I mean, corporations are doing a great job managing their expenses. They're using technology to be more productive. That, that You can't discount that either.
2: Okay, but how do you deal? And and Tom and I were in Davos, and it was the Davos man or the Davos woman looking at this new world order where globalization is not the name of the game anymore. When do markets realize?
1: Well, I don't think, Francine. I haven't thrown in the towel on globalization. I think we've kind of hit the pause button, and, and perhaps we kind of we got to reconfigure it or rethink it or kind of like make it more uh, broader, more integrated. So, I, I the markets have certainly not priced in deglobalization. If they had, then we'd have a bigger problem. So we got to look, you know, actually global trade volumes are picking up, global tr- trade flows are, 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 are increasing, M&A globally is picking up. But I think, you know, the, there's too much, I would say, optimism around the policy backdrop. And so if there's any failure there, we've got yeah, problems. Let
0: me do this for Francine, because Francine, I know you're based in Sterling. The Dow this year, if you're in London, up 40%. S&P 500 underperformed. It's up only 36%. The FTSE up 23%. If you invested in Tokyo from Sterling, you're up 34%. I mean, it's the most unloved, ginormous bull market, Joe, I've ever seen. Francie, get one more question in here, and I've got to do some breaking news.
2: Yeah, what do currencies, you know, when you look at indices around the world, what's the currency you want to be in?
1: Um, the Mexican peso. I mean, we've, I've been saying that for quite some time. I think it's, you know, it was oversold. I still think there's more upside.
2: Francine
0: uh, Laquan, London. I'm Tom Keenan in uh, New York. With us, Joe Quinlan. We continue um, our discussion. Let's run it over to economics. I mean, just Chair Yellen, is she central banker to the world? And I think a question for the weekend reading, does Chair Yellen care about the record lows in the German two year? My guess is she does.
1: Well, she, she has to, Tom. You're, you're right. And it's interesting. We haven't talked much about the Fed this, thus far this morning. I, I think the Fed is looking, to, looking at the data, saying they're going to move perhaps in March, if not June, maybe twice this year, put some ammunition back in the bank so they have that ready, but certainly worried about the, the numbers coming out of Germany. But I do think we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. And I'm sure she's worried about distress out of Italy and Spain that's driving those flows in the German safe haven.
2: Joe, how would you look at political risk in Europe? Does it play out two weeks before the French election? Does it wait until something ugly happens? T- talk me through the psychology of the markets right now.
1: Well, I mean, we're looking at the Dutch elections, see how that plays out. Watch the currency. I mean, the, the currencies is always a canary in a coal mine. So I think you know we're... Here's Francine, we should not be so surprised in 2017 as we were in 16 if we do get these political shocks, quote unquote. So the markets are pricing in, perhaps being a little bit more cautious, more risk management. So if Le Pen or if there's any kind of a populist movement that gains traction in Europe this year, that should not be so surprising to investors. So maybe that mutes the reaction.
2: What if we're jumping at shadows, Joe? We had a brilliant piece by Mark Gilbert, one of our Bloomberg View columnists, saying what if 2016 meant that the markets are jumping at shadows because now we're pricing political risk everywhere when there's none?
1: Well, then that perhaps means that we have this cyclical rebound. We get the policy, pro-growth policy Put in place. Remember, we've had too much austerity and too much dependence on monetary policy since the crisis. If we do, if, if it's a head fake, but we still get the fiscal stimulus, that tells me that we've got decent overall nominal global growth, which is going to be good for earnings and equities.
0: When I look, Joe, at uh, the idea of I got a 401k, and let's assume that 99% of our audience is behind those numbers I quoted earlier. How do you catch up? I mean we've been here before there's been other bull markets where we've been behind but I don't believe I've ever seen you know all the different theories and efficient markets and allocation and come on we just want to I just can I just do 80% of the S&P 500 and a lot of people can't say that how do
1: you catch up I mean don't swing for the fences you ha- and you have to save right I mean you have to have the capital to make capital so we're looking at kind of these long-term dividend growers payers don't panic you And know, the answer
0: is we got to put a lot more money inside. we got
1: to put a lot more money you know and, and that takes away from discretionary spending that's just where we're at and i don't think we're going to make it but. is
0: francine is the united kingdom the same i have no idea is is, is the united kingdom the same and that everybody's underinvested like we have off the ERISA act of 1974.
2: Well, I'm not sure. It's a great question for Joe. I guess the million-dollar question, Joe, is are we underinvested because of Brexit, or did it happen before?
1: I think perhaps before, and I do think... Yeah, you know, this is a great study for econ- economists. How much did monetary policy post the crisis really create income inequality, where it, it inflated the asset values for people who own the assets versus the folks who didn't, and created the spread, which then created the angst and the anger, well, and the later populism.
0: Okay, here we are I'll, today. I'll go with that. One more question, then off of that. William Gross has told us with Janus Capital that the financial repression will continue for years, if not decades. Are you saying at some point we will normalize and w- we will see assets subdue and the income disparity will lessen as the rich get poorer. Oh,
1: not necessarily the rich get poor, but we kind of distri- have the pie distribution differently. We, we're going to have to bring along the folks that are left behind the populist uprising, or you should be all in the cash. Think of it that way. So the policy response is be more pro-growth, more stimulus and that, for a while, medium term, is good for equities. But I think this is one of those markets between now and 2020 when you know you ha- you want to get out. We had a lot of clients saying, like, Joe, I can't do 2008 uh, again. And that's exactly we've got to keep in a close eye thanks on. Thanks
0: for the time. Greatly appreciate it. Joe Quinlan, with a lot going on in Europe this morning, uh, he is uh, with U.S. Trust Merrill Lynch and Thematic Strategy. seen what's your key insight this morning? What have what you learned, excuse me, through the week?
2: Well, you know what we haven't talked about today, and I learned today because of this by-election. You mentioned it briefly, Tom. So the UK Prime Minister Theresa May, um, you have a lot of investors saying she won't last a year. That's what George Soros told me in Davos, because she's pushing for this clean-cut hard Brexit. And then yesterday and today, she demonstrated her dominance of the political landscape by winning a by-election. Now, a by-election is basically a small election in the middle of an election cycle. It's extremely rare, Tom, almost impossible for the government in place to win it. And she did just that. I'm, I'm glad
0: you brought that up. Now, is this like a mid, what we call yes. a midterm election?
2: Yes, it's it's not really a midterm. But when somebody steps down of a seat, then you have an election that could be just okay. one region or, or one right. part of the UK. But historically, it's very rare that yeah. the, the party in charge wins it. Uh, Very good. Let me
0: bring in now someone who is is really a joy to speak to Terry McAuliffe. Uh, He has been important for his Democratic Party on too many fronts and now has maybe the best job in political America. I can say this because within all the political turmoil, uh, Governor McAuliffe, in Washington and really in my healing after the election turmoil, I'm reading everything on Jefferson I can. And so you get to bathe and all the legacy of Thomas Jefferson uh, in uh, Virginia, beginning with your wonderful executive mansion in Richmond, Virginia, which goes back to near 1812, the famous Alexander uh, Paris House uh, that you you have there. Your prism, and I'm going to ask you, Terry, some tough, delicate questions. Did Mr. Trump win the election, or did the Secretary of State, did Secretary Clinton lose the election? Which is it?
3: I mean, listen, you got to give uh, President Trump, he won the election. I mean, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty-twenty. I would make the argument that uh, the ca- our campaign should probably have leaned in more on economics, job creation, talk about all the great uh, things that had right. happened. But, you know, listen, he, he's the president. At the end of the day, he's sitting in the Oval Office right now. And uh, it just was a very unique time and, you know, a lot of— Surrounding circumstances with Comey's letter and all the Russia hacks and all that. But, you know, these are the things that happen in presidential politics. And, you know, you get a lot of things, a lot of surprises happen. And uh, he's sitting there and he was inaugurated. So, you know, he won. That's all I can say.
0: The fabric of your Virginia is one of the most diverse states in the nation, maybe Illinois, maybe Georgia. I'll let you decide. You're the pro at this. I'm not. But you have a diversity in Virginia that I would suggest is like nowhere else. What is the underlying support for President Trump right now from his core constituency witness his speech today, but particularly, Terry, at the marginal Republican level? Are those people with him, or are they stealable by you Democrats?
3: Well, he's in he's in a bad shape politically today in Virginia. A Poll came out the other day. Um, I think you know, the Quinnipiac poll. He was underwater sixteen or eighteen points. We've never seen anything like it this fast. Um, so people are very concerned. We have a lot of issues. I mean, he's done the federal hiring freeze. We are very concerned about what he's going to do on Obamacare. A repeal without replacement town would cost us two hundred million dollars a year automatically in our budget. We're very concerned. About the travel ban. As you know, I went to Dulles Airport. I think I was the first elected official out when I heard there was a family being detained there with two children with U.S. passports without access to legal counsel. We're very concerned about what is happening with ICE <coughs> officials right. today. We had an incident at a church the other day. Uh, it was a hypothermia center. Folks went in there to get out of the cold. They came out the next day and... Uh, Six, seven ICE agents uh, accosted them. I mean, the first person they talked to was a legal resident.
0: Francine, I'd make a joke here about Dulles Airport, and Governor McAuliffe is going to fix the world's worst airport. But it's not funny, unfortunately. There's so much seriousness going on in this. Francine.
3: Tom, if you could have been there with me, I'm telling you, with these families, uh, it was heart-wrenching. I mean, families there six, eight hours, they got on a plane with legal documents and were detained when they landed. And how about yesterday, reports of coming off of domestic flights in America and having to show your ideas? Governor,
2: will the institutions work? And actually, I I don't know about the airport, Tom, but I'm a a huge fan of Virginia because it reminds me of childhood memories going around Shenandoah National Park with my family. Will the institutions in America work to try and fix some of the problems you were just talking about?
3: I believe so. In fact, we're here this weekend, uh, the National Governors Association, which I'm the chairman of, uh, we have our largest crowd ever. We have forty-seven governors going to be here for four days. We're going to meet uh, several times with President Trump. We're having lunch today with Vice President Pence. We're going to meet with the congressional leaders on uh, Monday. Listen, we have to work together. Yeah. Uh, and and the point we like, listen, that executive travel ban executive order was hastily put together with no consultation with with the Congress or the courts, and of course he paid a price for that. And. You know, the border agents, custom agents did not have clear guidelines, Mm -hmm. and it really was an embarrassment for our great nation, you know, the bastion of civil liberties, democracy, uh, to have that go on. But the systems will work, but in my point as chairman, which I will say to the president, we have to work together. You know, 230 years ago in Yorktown, Virginia, we sent the British back. In the Battle of Yorktown, we got rid of the king. We're not bringing one back 235 years later. If you're just
0: joining us, Terry McAuliffe, he's the governor of the state of uh, Virginia, Francine LaCroix in London. I'm Tom Keene in New York. Governor, when I look at immigration, I guess the feeling I have, and I think so many Americans have, is we understand on the cover of the New York Times today, the Wall Street Journal, the FT, Bloomberg, whatever, that there seem to be almost two White Houses. How do the cabinet officers get control of the procedural dialogue of this White House? How does Gov- uh, General Kelly, General Mattis, Mr. Tillerson, how do they become dominant figures, or is that just a fiction?
3: Well, they better become dominant, uh, or else we're this country's in for a very rough road. Uh, I'll be meeting with General Kelly. I sent him a letter, my concern about what had happened in Virginia. I'll be meeting with General Kelly on Sunday with ICE officials to go through. I mean, it's clear now we have a new standard here in America, that you can randomly stop anyone you are without any due process, any due cause. That is a really, a, that's a big shift in America. That's never happened before. But my fear as governor is this to me all comes back to the economy, comes back to jobs. This could have a chilling effect on the economy. I have already lost several site visits of companies from overseas who are coming to Virginia to build manufacturing facilities have now said, you know, it's not the right time to come to America. We're scared to come to America. And remember, uh, Tom and Francine, that 95% of the world's customers live outside of America. It is truly a global economy. We're doing great in Virginia. Right. I 185,000 new jobs since I've been governor. Unemployment's gone from 5-4 to 4-1, but we do that because I trade on a global basis, and when, when you start doing these with a the fear of raids and all these other issues, it is going to affect the U.S. economy.
2: Governor, how difficult is it for Democrats and for a Democratic governor to push back against some of the Trump policies? Do you not need to convince? Because it's very easy for the president to turn around and say, well, you're the opposition. Of course you would say that. Do you not need to convince people within his own party to to maybe change and take a different tack?
3: Well, I think the most important thing we can do as governors is we have a very large bully pulpit. You know, listen, when I went out to Dallas Airport, I was on all the networks, and they carried it live on Fox and CNN. That's what you can do is raise the issue. I have been very vocal on these ICE detainer issues, and I think what we can do is raise (coughs) awareness. But, right, the federal government has the ability, you know, to do what they want to do on these federal issues as it relates to deportation and so forth. But we want to work. Listen, I – listen – Everybody, every governor wants the same thing. We want a strong economy. We want jobs. We want a great health care and education system. That should be the same thing. I have known President Trump for 20 years. I've had dinner with him. I've golfed with him. He actually gave me $25,000 when I ran for governor. I And I just, uh, he and I should have the same goal about growing the economy. But I think he's had a very rough start. I think he's well, made a lot of mistakes in the first 30 days. Let's
0: let's continue this discussion. Terry McAuliffe with his folks, of course, with his service to the Democrat uh, a Party. somebody the Republicans have always uh, respected in terms of uh, just loyalty to the party. We'll continue on the Democrats. With us, Governor McAuliffe of uh, Virginia. And it's always good to talk to him about the present politics. Terry, I want to go back to your exceptional competencies of running things for the Democratic Party. And I can take it all the way back to scenic Syracuse, New York and Bishop Ludden a few years ago. The Democrats got clobbered. In Cayuga, Cortland, Madison, Onondaga, and Oswego County, the, the, the heart of central uh, New York. In Oswego County, Mr. Trump took 58% of the vote. How does the next Democratic candidate, how do the progressives of the Democratic Party get back to winning their fair share of those votes?
3: Uh, it's a good question, Tam. Uh, One thing I have argued with the Democrats, we need a stronger economic message. I mean, as I say, look at Virginia today. Uh, We traditionally uh, used to be a red state, purple state uh, in elections. We've now moved to a blue state in presidential elections because, like when I ran for governor, I ran on a strong economic message. My focus is going to be jobs, 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 diversifying the economy. We're leading the country today on cybersecurity and new biosciences, human genome sequencing. Democrats have to lay out a plan. What is it you're going to do for me? And, you know, President Trump during the campaign, you know, he had his slogans and he has things. And it resonated with a lot of folks. You know, at the end of the day, the ills of our economy cannot be put on trade. But, you know, it's easy to blame, let's say a Mexico or a China, I always say on trade, Tom, you give me a fair trade deal, protect worker rights, environmental wreck. I can beat anybody in the globe. I can sell our products anywhere. Give me a fair deal. But this idea that we are going to put walls up around our country and isolate, we cannot grow by just selling to ourselves. We have to take part. As I say, 95% of the world's customers outside America, you got to go with those customers. So the Democratic Party message, I mean, I consider myself a very fiscally conservative, pro-business Democrat. I'm socially very progressive. I just vetoed two days ago, HB 2264, uh, you know, a defund Planned Parenthood bill in Virginia. Mm-hmm. They constantly are sending me bills anti-women, anti lgbt My argument in all this is leave people alone, focus on the economy, Give the children a quality education, let the transportation system work, and people are gonna be happy. Right. And and today I have very high approval ratings because it's all about economics, it's all about jobs, and I think the Democrats have gotten their eye off the ball. I mean, how Tom did right, we lose Governor- Michigan when Barack Obama saved the
0: auto industry? Well yeah, in and, and, and and that's the heart of the matter, Francis. Right,
2: but Governor, you say that Democrats need a plan. They also need a leader. Who is your party going to rally?
3: You know, I don't know if it's going to be one person. I mean, we have a DNC election, but, you know, I served as the chairman of the party. You're not the leader of the party in that sense. You run the mechanics, the guts of the party. You put the primaries on and you do all that. I think it's going to be a chorus of individuals. I mean, when you have the president, obviously he's the leader of the party. I think most of the leadership is going to come out of the governors. Got to remember, every day. I worry about economic development, jobs. I have to have a quality education system, or I can't bring businesses to Virginia. i got to be able to move people okay, around northern Virginia. Let me
0: let me interrupt you. This is so sure. important, Francine. Francine Lacroix, Governor McAuliffe, held spellbound all of Paris at the climate talks. Okay? Am I right that Ivanka Trump had to basically go into the Oval Office yesterday and say, Dad, don't screw around with climate change? How are you going to shift the dialogue on some of these issues? Well, I think in fairness, you know, he's only 30 days in. Fair.
3: But he has got some big issues. I think they've learned how tough this is. First of all, they talk about repealing Obamacare. I'm going to do it day one when I get elected. Well, guess what? Speaker Boehner said yesterday the Republicans aren't going to do it. This is not easy to throw 18 million people on the street and take their health care away from. This is a okay. very complex, it's not a political soundbite.
2: Governor, the, who should the president listen to?
0: Me? That's the hard, No, but come on, seriously. <laughs> to her, Greg? come on, Terry. The new, <laughs> Francine, you don't know this. The cover of Francine's question is brilliant. The cover of the New York Times today, Governor McAuliffe, I yes. have never seen. There are not one, two, three parallel paths within the White House. Who no. is President Trump going to listen to?
3: He better listen to the people. Here's what I would say. He better listen to people who have had the experience and expertise in the areas that they are in charge of. And I hope he listens to General Mattis. I hope he listens to General Kelly because these folks are experts. And right. They know what's going on. I mean, listen, I have a son in the armed forces. I have a son who's a United States Marine. I'm very proud of it. I want to make sure that when these military decisions are made, that we are protecting our young men in women, uniform, okay. and we are doing this deliberately.
0: Governor, we didn't get to the lousy commute in Virginia, which is eighth worst in the nation, sandwiched oh. between Illinois and Georgia. Yep. We, Francine and I need to come to Washington, go to Williamsburg, show Francine how British America did things right in your Virginia before we threw the mother country across the Atlantic Ocean. We need, we need to come down there and meet with you again. Terry McCullough, thank you so much. He is the governor of Virginia. Francine, you see how I did that? We can do the show from Yorktown.
2: <laughs> it's a road trip. It's not a show. It's a road trip. Tom. It's a
0: road trip to Yorktown. We can see where Cornwallis said goodbye. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner and Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. And now, frankly, the most important interview of the day. George Friedman is fiery with an encyclopedic knowledge of military and defense Uh, And is always interesting. George, we could speak literally for five hours straight today. There's so much to talk about. He is with Geopolitical Futures. George, I um, looked at the cover of The New York Times today, the cover of the FT, the cover of Bloomberg's work. I've never seen anything like this. On issue after issue after issue, there are two streams of thought coming out of the Trump White House. Let's just begin with generals in Mexico. Uh, Tell me what we do when we project General Mattis and General Kelly in the cabinet, but I believe they have no power. How do they get a voice within the administration?
4: Well, very frankly, we have a rule on everything. Pay no attention to what any political leader says. Uh, You wouldn't buy a stock based on what the CEO said yesterday. Watch what they've actually done. The actual actions of the administration have been much more conservative. Agreed. Uh, And that's what's important. So when we ask who has the influence, we assume we know what Trump is thinking. We assume we know what the power structure is inside the White House. The fact is, just look at what they're doing. They're doing what they said they were doing in a very moderate and limited way.
0: Okay, and then the next stream, and Francine, this gets us going on a half hour with uh, Mr. Friedman. The photo yesterday that stopped all of America dead in its tracks, whatever anybody believes, was a domestic flight, I believe out of SFO, of ICE customs immigration types checking passports. That's almost a quasi-military group. Is that a military operation? Actually, it's the rule of law. Congress passed a law
4: on immigration back in the Clinton administration. Clinton agreed to it. Um, it was never enforced properly. Okay. So, one of the questions is do we have laws on immigration or don't we? Uh, it's not that I'm a supporter of Trump in many things, but in this particular case, uh, he's playing cleanup for Obama, Bush, and Clinton. Who never really enforced this? and and, fr-
0: and Francine, I want you to jump in here with Mr. Friedman, but Francine, let me make clear that a large body of Americans agree, and here's the key word with some of the President on immigration. I mean, he's got huge support on some of these immigration actions.
2: Right. But Georgia, how do you see this unfolding? You have he, the president, has some support. He has a lot of support and he has a lot of dissent. Who are the institutions that will decide what comes next? I keep on being told the president, even if he's the president of the United States, can't do what he wants all the time.
4: Well, this is law. What he is doing in dealing with illegal immigration is a law that's been in place and he's enforcing it. Now, what is going on here is an argument by those who would like to change the law and allow illegal immigrants to remain in the United States, and that may be a very good idea, that we're going to do that regardless of what the law says. So, in terms of the polit- law, it's all on his side. In terms of the politics, um, you know, there's a large number of people in the United States who feel that, uh, first, they're uncomfortable with immigration. But more important, they're very uncomfortable with the idea that a president can simply ignore the law. So I think in the long run, he's going to be in pretty strong shape.
2: All right. But George, OK. And I understand. I mean, we have look, I live in London. We have very bizarre laws. I mean, there's one law saying that you can't be drunk in a pub. So, of course, it's law. I understand that. I get that. The law has not been enforced in certain cases because illegal immigrants add a lot to certain industries. I'm thinking of the farming industry right? Well, yeah.
4: This is true. You can't law dispute has that. Not been enforced. This is not a bizarre law. The United States has had a law on immigration since 1920. Uh, it has always been enforced. So if what we're going to say is, look, we're not going to enforce laws that cause economic disruption. Uh, we've got a problem. Instead, what we do is go to Congress and have them change the law. Congress doesn't want to change the law. Uh, and now we're appalled that somebody's going to enforce it. So the question is a political one, not a moral mm-hmm. one, if it's right or wrong. In the end, uh, he's going to get a lot of support on this. Right now, it's being presented as if it is an arbitrary action by his right. part. The media has been all over him. But the fact of the matter is that all he's doing is enforcing a law that's been out of the books for
0: years. Your expertise with the Pentagon and with the military, does does, and I understand the, I do not, I speak as an amateur folks, The difference between military and police force in seven other shades, Mr. Friedman, you know better than us. Does the military want to be involved with this? Is this something they just say, you know, we don't want to do this battle? How does the Pentagon feel about the militarization of our immigration effort?
4: Well, yeah, that's a media statement. The military cannot be involved in law enforcement in the United States under an act called Posse Comitatis that was signed in 1870s. So there is no option of taking the U.S. military okay. and turning the police force, unless you're going to break the law. The second thing is that if you are going to decide that you are going to take care of this problem, uh, you're going to right. have people checking that. If you want to call that the militarization, you know, great. Uh, What he's doing is probably not quite right. From a practical point of view, he's moving fast. But from a legal and a political point of view, it's not militarization.
2: Okay, so George, what's been happening so far? Have previous administrations turned a blind eye on illegal immigration? Is that how you would describe it?
4: They have not completely turned a blind eye. Uh, Obama expelled 2,500,000 illegal immigrants, but they did not make it a priority of enforcement. To some extent, the president has the right to decide what the priorities of enforcement are, so long as it's within the framework of the law. And previous uh, presidents decided politically, even if it was law, they weren't going to do it. Interestingly, the most aggressive one enforcing it was Obama.
0: George, a few more questions, if we could, on the present uh, tense of uh, Washington, D.C. What is the actual relationship of the Secretary of Defense, General Mattis, and the Pentagon well it, to me it 's a mystery how the Secretary of Defense dovetails with the Pentagon. How do they do that?
4: Well, the Secretary of Defense legally uh, it, it, the Joint Chiefs of Staff are answerable to him. He effectively oversees and runs them this particular uh, this particular Secretary of Defense is extremely knowledgeable about it, and one of the things he 's come in with is arguing that. The military has become enormously inefficient, spending large amounts of money on things that take years to field. Uh, one of them was an armored vehicle that was badly needed in Iraq. It took five years to get into the field. And he intends to make it more efficient by making, it, among other things, a much smaller bureaucracy in the Pentagon and many more troops in the field.
2: George, talk to me a little bit about the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson. So I've been reading a lot of U.S. news, Politico, the Washington Post, both describing how the former ExxonMobil CEO had been cut out of the loop on some shifts in terms of foreign policy and slapped down by the White House on personnel choices. What does that mean on how President Trump will deal with his cabinet?
4: Well, first, that assumes that this is true. Uh, second, Very good point. You're was- right. Yeah. Secondly, it assumes it forgets that he came into the cabinet latest, so he 's not really up to date, so that when he went uh, to um, Europe, uh, he basically said i 'm here to listen and not to act he 's never had a government job he has never really done this before, and he knows it, and i think he 's being very careful. You can interpret the fact that things have to be done and he's not ready to do them as cutting him out of the loop, or you can simply say they're going to give him a couple of months to find his feet. Uh, but also remember one thing in Washington or in London, lots of people get cut out of the loop on decisions. Uh, the simple fact that you hold a job with a certain title doesn't mean that your prime minister or our president is going to consult you on everything. That's just the standard way governments run, standard way companies run.
2: Right, but is he arguably the most important appointment for the uh, Trump administration?
4: He is one appointment. He runs the State Department. Uh, The appointment at the Defense Department is Mm -hmm. equally important. The National Security Advisor, uh, the head of the CIA... Unfortunately, and I think this is a problem, the complexity of American decision-making and foreign policy means that there is no one person you can point to who is the most important. He uh, is one of many.
0: Well, this is a very good point in that the president speaking this morning. We'll have that for you folks in seven uh, minutes of CPAC. And then we go on to uh, his congressional efforts next week everyone can agree this is a president that likes simplicity he likes simplistic statements simplistic theories simplistic plans i'm not trying to make a judgment here folks i'm just stating the fact you've just stated our foreign policy and defense projection is highly complex how is the industry george friedman that you're in going to deliver a simple message to the president well first
4: we have to have a simple message to deliver And there is no simple message, partly because this really is complicated and can't be boiled down to just a simple message, partly because the industry loves to complicate it. The more complicated the issue is, the more they own it. The more you need experts, I get all that. Yeah, Yeah. 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 so I mean the problem that we have here is that we have reached a point, as everybody points out, we have 16 intelligence agencies that's built to fail. In his simplistic way, and the president puts things in simplistic ways, uh, you know, he's pointed this out. You know, he's pointed out that the decision-making structure of our foreign policy can't generate strategy, doesn't listen to the president when strategy is made, and so on. This has been an old discussion. Now
0: he's going to take a shot
4: okay. at fixing it. My expectation is he'll fail. I mean, this is this is built into our foreign policy.
0: From, from where you sit, and, and I say this, folks, with Mr. Bannon's comments yesterday, and who knows what we'll see as we stagger to Monday, a grizzled guy like you in the middle, I, I love this, I, Francine, I love saying this, George Friedman is part of the... Military-Industrial Complex. Well, That's a thank fr- you. I, wish fr- I didn't know we were a meeting next week. <laughs> <laughs> but as part of a phrase from another time and place, and, you know, a bad military movies from the other time, what does your industry do with Mr. Bannon? Do you, do you, do you just wait him out, or is General Madison and others going to do something? What, what's the so, the so guess I say.
4: Every administration has an ideologue agreed, in its foreign policy structure. Um, the Obama administration was filled with them. What you're doing is, one, you're answerable to the president, and you have to carry out the policy. Secondly, the ideologue mostly makes speeches. He's in charge of whipping up the base and saying all the things that are going to happen. So usually, a Abaddon has no effect. He doesn't really get down into the meetings where things really happen. But I don't know of any administration that hasn't had a Bannon. Now, this Bannon is particularly disliked by the foreign policy establishment compared to some of the others right. that have been there. But still, it has to have some sort of ideological statement for the public. And you do have to remember, as right. he was
2: elected. Right.
4: So he is the but president.
2: This... Right. So we you followers. say— can you say with any certainty that the U.S. foreign policy at the moment is America first? Is that foreign policy?
4: Well, it's supposed to be because the president is charged with making certain by the Constitution of uh, the Amer- American safety. That's his job. I think all presidents do that. But remember, we've been in war for 15 years. It hasn't worked. Our relationship to Mexico hasn't evolved. So Mexico, when we signed NAFTA, was I think the 26th largest economy in the world. It is now 11th largest economy in the world. There's a different dynamic going on. So one of the problems I wish Trump would be able to enunciate is, look, we are playing by a playbook that's 10, 20 years old. It needs to be updated. Europe certainly isn't what it was in 1991 in terms of organization, structure, solidity, and so on. We can't continue a foreign policy that assumes that nothing has changed. And the foreign policy establishment likes to do that. So the answer is that he was elected to transform the system. I don't know if he can do that, but part of that is he's very offensive to a lot of people. So, to understand him, you back off okay. all the things that he's saying. What has yeah. he done so far in foreign policy? Not a whole lot.
0: We need to talk more often. George Friedman, thank you so much. We get a huge response with Mr. Friedman is uh, not so much giving his opinion, but just stating fact. Like, this is the law. And in this case, the president's finally affecting the law, as you heard. It's been around since President Clinton. Somehow, I would suggest this debate will continue. Francine Lacroix, thank you so much. We heard from David Gura. I can't even pronounce the name. He's in some city in Tierra del Fuego at the tip of South America, Ushia or something, on his way back from Antarctica with his kids. So maybe we'll see David Gura on Monday. What a week it's been. Thank you so much for your attention to us on radio, on television, worldwide. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gurra is at David Gurra. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.